Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world and we always will be. So with this show I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together let's ask the world's biggest questions, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to evolve. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is an MIT college dropout who went on to be a pioneer in redesigning higher education in the 21st century, being widely recognized as the creator of the anti-college. Started in 2012, his disruptive college called Make School has educated over 2,000 students over the last seven years in in in-person programs and locations such as San Francisco, Sunnyvale, LA, New York, Tokyo, Taipei, and Hong Kong and over 1 million students through their online content. Inside an over 100-year-old industry, they have become one of the first to establish a new college with an accredited degree and a physical campus in San Francisco with blueprints in the works for New York. With over 200 students enrolled, graduates out-competing alumni from Stanford and MIT for jobs at companies like Facebook, Google, Apple, Tesla, and other Silicon Valley powerhouses, landing an average salary of 95K a year and shipping thousands of apps, reaching tens of millions of people through their project-based approach, it's clear that the curriculum he and his team have developed is highly desirable and undeniably effective. The best part, students don't pay unless they have a job after graduation. Students can graduate in two years and pay tuition through the groundbreaking income share agreements as a percentage of their salary once employed. But students are not the only ones having unquestionable faith in this progressive education model. These founders have raised over $30 million from education and impact-focused investors such as Learn Capital, Y Combinator, Power Capital, and those even funded by the World Bank. This 2019 Forbes 30 Under 30 founder has been featured in a litany of the most prestigious media outlets and publications including CBS, U.S. News, U.S. Today, Money Magazine, and The Wall Street Journal. Practicing what he preaches, he has delivered over a thousand hours of technical instruction at institutions such as MIT, UC Berkeley, and CMU, lectured on engineering and entrepreneurship to over 20,000 students, and has spoken or participated in hundreds of hackathons around the country. I'm honored to welcome co-founder of Make School, Y Combinator 2012 alumni, and the instructor who literally taught the school's first iOS development course out of his living room in Palo Alto, Jeremy Rossman. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So before we dive into your journey and how Make School came to be, I want to know how you uh, were pushed as a kid from your parents. Um, Your father has done many startups. Did they foster entrepreneurship in you or what kind of things were they telling you as a kid? I think it's it's, it's an important question because, you know, I have to acknowledge that a huge amount of what I've been able to accomplish comes from the environment and background that I was fortunate enough to have uh, growing up. So, you know, my parents met working at Apple. I was born and raised in Palo Alto, California. Um, And uh, there was never an explicit push to do startups. But Mm -hmm. what did happen was practically every single day, um, one of my parents took the time to drive me to school, no matter how busy they were. Um, and in retrospect, you know, now that I'm, 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 I'm running, uh, uh, you know, a startup, I realized that that was a tremendous feat. And, uh, and every single day on the way to school, on the way back, my parents would share, uh, some of what was going on, mm. 
work. Um, and uh, in, in my dad's case, that was often, uh, you know, the latest trials and tribulations with his latest startup. Um, right. He um, he has started many. And so in, in a sense, I was, you know, it was almost uh, unfair the, the fact that I basically got like a mini startup MBA um, <laughs> on, the, on the drive to school every day yeah. um, throughout my childhood. And even in high school, when, you know, kids are kind of trying to get their, their learner's permit and their license so they can finally be independent, um, I, uh, I would still let myself be driven by parents to school, you know, junior year, senior year of high school. And uh, we'd have those conversations in the car. And so I think that was that that was that was a big part of it. Not to mention that their friend group, as you might imagine, was a lot mm. uh, a lot of folks in tech. And so um, certainly, there you know, I would not have gone down this path had I not come from this environment. Absolutely. And then in in high school, you took a computer science class, and this is kind of what lit the fire. So, what was that pivotal moment for you? So, I was super lucky that my high school offered three years of computer science courses, and this was. Back in the 2000s, um, when you know the majority of high schools in the United States still, and actually today, still don't offer computer science, so we had three years of computer science classes with two um, really forward-thinking teachers, uh, Mr. Thibodeau and Mr. Steinberg, and they were all about uh, active learning and project-based learning. And so I, I didn't know any other way of learning computer science. I didn't realize that um, there were uh, there were places where you learned out of out of, out of a textbook, right? You. Yeah. you you learn by sitting there. You were expected to somehow learn computer science from a big lecture hall. Um, and my exposure to it was, you know, from the very beginning, uh, very, very project-based. And what, what ended up happening was in my last year of high school, I was in the post-AP computer science class, given pretty free reign to work on, on, on projects that I was designing with my classmates. And it was also the first year that the App Store was really a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple had announced it, you know, and and all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, you know, we can we can learn how to make these, you know, the, the phrase "I have an app idea" like didn't exist right until yeah. basically senior year of high school, and so you know we were all teaching ourselves, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a bunch of different kinds of things, but you know, it was second semester senior year, there was one junior in our class, and that junior he taught himself iOS development and he launched an app on the App Store. And he made $30,000. And so we're looking at that going, oh, you know, (laughs) this is something we should pay more attention to. And uh, that junior actually ended up becoming my co-founder. And he's the guy, Ashu, with whom I started Make School. So um, at the end of my senior year, really into project-based learning, starting to get turned on to the fact that like the app store could be an awesome outlet for some of my ideas. And so when I get to college the next year, I am all fired up to take advantage of MIT's computer science education resources. And I'm all excited to, to make apps like that, that junior, you know, who yeah. was in my class. And I find that the, that the education at MIT um, was, was far more traditional in comparison. And mm-hmm. so it, you know, think about like privilege, like what it, the privilege to have uh, had high school computer science courses that made you disappointed in the quality of your MIT. <laughs> yeah. But I had a taste of like what could have been, you know, it could have been, it could have been all active learning project based. And I just remember that first lecture, my first CS class at MIT sitting in this lecture hall going, Oh, this is not mm. how I learn. This is not, um, uh, how, how I'm going to be successful. And I started, uh, a little project with some friends at MIT to make an app myself and I found myself pulling all-nighters for that and, and skimping on um, um, my CS classes. And so at some point, it was like, 
you know, I'm not making the most of this whole MIT thing. Um, and I'm all excited about, about, about learning by building, learning by doing, learning by launching a product. And there's something addictive, you know, once you launch something that real people can use, right. all of a sudden people using it becomes the motivating factor to keep on learning because every morning you wake up and it's like, how many downloads did I get? What are the reviews like? Mm. Someone found a bug and they emailed me. And that's way better motivation to like go back and start coding again than like the next problem set, you know, the next page in the textbook, the right. next lecture. And so I started feeling like, wait a second, I can tell what's motivating me. I know what education in CS could look like from the taste I got in high school. And there's this amazing outlet called the app store that is being completely underutilized. And it's literally a nobody's roadmap. Like there was no one in the CS faculty at MIT who was like, Oh yeah, you know, we're working on bringing the, the new advances in tech back into the classroom. Cause that's just not the culture in traditional higher ed. There's not really a systematized way to go out there and be like, okay, something has changed in the real world. Let's bring it back into the classroom. And, uh, and so that, 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 you know, I think gives you a hint of why um, I ended up uh, leaving uh, MIT to start, uh, to start my own school. Yeah, you started uh, with a program called Make Games with Us, you know, in, right. in your living room, and now it's grown to a fully accredited college with dorms, clubs, like the works. How did you make this happen? Moving from there to what you have now. So you know, we're talking about a, a what is now essentially an eight-year story, and mm -hmm. and uh, and so there's, there's there were you know a bunch of ups and downs and um, uh, and pivots and turns, but the the short of it was. I, I teamed up with that junior who by then was a freshman at UCLA, Ashu. Um, you know, he was having the same experience at UCLA, like disengaged with his learning, you know, making apps, working on projects, that sort of thing. So we initially, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to drop out. We were like, let's take some time off. And by the way, this was more diplomatic for our parents. <laughs> and, and we were fortunate enough to get into Y Combinator going through it in, 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 the, in the winter 2012 uh, batch. And in January of 2012, we started teaching um, a computer science class at the high school that we met at. Oh, wow. We went back to that classroom, to Mr. Thibodeau's classroom, and we said, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's teach a semester at our old high school of app development. Yeah. And so the origin of Make School basically is me and my co-founder teaching computer science in the way that we wish we had been taught in college and teaching a new tool and technology that we thought was the most engaging way to get a young teenager excited about coding. And that class that we started teaching during Y Combinator turned into our then first summer program. We took that same curriculum we built. We offered it as a summer program, as you said, you know, living room of the house. And very quickly over the years, 2012, 2013, 2014, started seeing students attribute their career success not to what they had learned in college, but to the apps that they had made and the portfolio that they had built in our mm -hmm. summer programs. And so we're sitting there going, huh. And as you also mentioned in the intro, we started taking this summer curriculum and selling it back to colleges. So like Carnegie Mellon hired us to teach their ever app development course at their grad school um, at the Silicon Valley campus in Mountain View. And so we're like, okay, we're selling this into colleges and students at colleges love it. We're running our own summer programs all over the world and students are loving it. And people are doing this eight week program with us and then saying that they're getting their internship at Facebook or at Square or wherever it might be, thanks to that summer and not thanks to their formal education, we're probably onto something. Right. And so in 2014, we decided to pilot something more. We're like, okay, rather than be a supplement to traditional education, let's try and be a disruptor in traditional education and offer something that students could do instead. So from 2014 to 2018, 
make school was this thing that you did instead of going to college. Um, so it transitioned uh, in that, you know, summer of 2014, we, we, we ran the summer program. And then in that fall, we offered the first ever long form program where the tuition model that you described was pioneered right then. It was like, mm-hmm. okay, don't pay us unless you get a job, spend a year with us. That was in 2014. In 2015, it became spend two years with us. And for the next few years, it was this alternative to college. You know, you'd say, mom, dad, I'm not going to college. I'm going to make school. They'd get all flustered. Your parents would call me and say, <laughs> Christina, she had so much potential. And now she's make school. What's make school? <laughs> you know? And then I'd have to console the parents over the phone. Um, but during those four years, 2014 to 2018, we proved that the financial model could work. So you don't pay unless you get a job and students are getting jobs. We proved that the education model worked, that it wasn't just a thing we could do in a summer program, but we could extend that same style of teaching. And we could apply it to other technologies, other tools, but even more fundamentally and more importantly, to CS fundamentals, to CS theory, to the foundations that students needed to be able to get a comprehensive education that would allow them to forego entirely a, a like traditional college degree. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was during those years that you know, we had our first placements at top companies, Apple, Google, Facebook started hiring from the program. We started partnering, um, uh, with, uh, with, with, with these companies, uh, to get feedback on our curriculum, um, and, and to provide opportunities for our students to get hired. And then in 2018, we were reborn as a bachelor's program. And so, you know, that process started sometime in 2017 when we realized that the accrediting agency that covers the West coast, um, you know, the same folks that accredit like Stanford and, and right. UC Berkeley and all that, um, they had created this new policy called the incubation policy that basically was, was putting a call out to the world saying, hey, alternative institutions, we want you to become degree granting. We want to give you a pathway to do so. It was very, very innovative, right? Um, and, and, and since 2014, no one had done it. Mm. So we're looking at this, we're going, oh, there's actually this call from the accrediting agency. They want institutions like ours to become colleges. They don't want us to exist outside the system. And they're inviting us to participate in the process and they've created the pathway. And that pathway basically was find an existing college to partner with you, have them vouch for you, go through their approval processes as if they were adding a new major on their own campus. Mm. And if they, their curriculum committees and their deans and all that were willing to sign off and say, you know what, this is college level material, then this program could become a bachelor's program and you could operate in conjunction with that partner college for a few years and eventually spin off. Okay. So we are currently operating in partnership with a university just north of San Francisco called the Dominican University of California. They have done this vouching and study, you know, of our program. The accreditors approved it. And in fall 2018, Make School became a bachelor's program uh, in applied computer science, fully accredited. Um, the Dominican University faculty actually come on our campus once a week on Fridays to teach general education courses, philosophy, ethics, and so on and so forth. And it's a full college education that we still offer in an accelerated format. So you can finish it in two years, even though it's a full four-year bachelor's degree. You don't have to pay unless you get a job. By the way, since uh, you pulled the number of 95K as the average salary coming out, it's actually gone up to over 100K. Wow. We just recruited um, uh, about a month ago, and, and we're now over 100K on the, on the average salary the students are getting out of their first job. And so we went from me and my co-founder teaching 30 students how to make their first iPhone app, literally in the living room of a house in Palo Alto, California, <laughs> to selling curriculum to colleges, to running our own alternative to college to getting that alternative to college approved as a bachelor's program. And over the next couple of years, we're going to spin off completely independently, no longer be 
incubated by Dominican University um, and, and makes what will be a standalone university um, in San Francisco. But already today, it effectively operates like a new college that, that students can go to. There's, as you said, dorms and clubs, a campus building, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it is the place that students go to college. So it's kind of like a cake and eat it to situation now where we have all that alternative pedagogy, the alternative mm-hmm. financial model, the relationships with the industry, the alternative curriculum, and the accreditors have recognized it and said, hey, if you do this thing, you'll get a real regionally accredited bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have our first students getting the degrees um, just just in a couple of months, which is really exciting. So That's we're going to awesome. have graduates, um, but we have you know the 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 outcomes proof from a career perspective dating back all the way to 2014, um, and those numbers continue to be you know pretty mind blowingly great. Yeah, you guys have a a 10 percent dropout rate with about 80 to 90 percent students getting high paying jobs. Um, how are you guys staying connected with what the job market wants and creating such a high success rate? So, you know, we definitely benefit from being right down uh, in, we're in Union Square, downtown San Francisco. So it's like, hey, you know, lift, you know, engineers, uh, you want to get feedback on a curriculum, like walk over during your lunch break, you know, and that literally happens. Like we have partnerships with these companies. Recently, we had Spotify on campus. And they devote engineering resources to giving us feedback on our curriculum. We have a full-time curriculum team and a full-time career services team. And they work in tandem to maintain relationships with companies and be updating content and curriculum constantly. So every few months, we're refreshing, we're staying current, we're adding new electives, new in-major courses that, that ensure that our students are, are, are learning the, you know, the latest and greatest. And as a more recent example, you know, as uh, data science and machine learning and deep learning have become um, really... Uh, fundamental building blocks of a lot of the technology industry in the Silicon Valley over the past few years, we've started adding aggressively new content curriculum around Mm -hmm. that and been consulting with companies to make sure that we're right on point and teaching the tools, technologies, math, fundamentals, et cetera, et cetera, that map to what those companies need. Um, And so, you know, it's deliberate practice and, um, and, and a really strong incentive to do so because we don't get paid unless our students get paid. So it's like, you know, there's the how, but there's also the, we can't afford not to, right? Right. Like colleges can kind of afford to like stagnate because they get paid up front and like they have hundred year old brands or 200 or 300 year old brands. But like for us, it's a question of survival, right? If our Mm -hmm. students aren't, and if we're getting feedback from companies like, Hey, your students weren't really well prepared and we're not going to come back to hire from you. Like that's devastating to our entire future possibility of existing. So um, we, we do it, we have to do it. Um, and uh, and it's a primary focus here. Yeah. Uh, the other flip side, um, college is like a pretty critical time in like human development um, for people. So how are you guys fostering that development of being a complete human, you know, creating empowered individuals and members of society? That's a, that's a fantastic question. You know, it turns out by the way that the, that whole industry feedback part, mm-hmm. uh, thankfully, is supportive of of that mission because it turns out that companies, they want to hire people who have had broad foundations in critical thinking, exposure to general education. Um, And and so, you know, one of the worries that that we heard the accreditor express was like, listen, you all are so career focused that won't you be pressured to like remove general education, remove, you know, these, these sort of well-rounded skills. And, and thankfully the answer is no, actually companies love it and want it. Um, but, but not only that, um, it's been a priority since 2014 because we understood that we had a responsibility if, you know, we're going to be taking students 
um, back then we were taking them out of college, right, right. To, to come to our school, um, it, it, it better be, you know, complete education. So there's a few different things we do. The first is we have a coaching program. Students get assigned to a coach. That coach is like, you know, a boosted academic advisor. Of course, they're there to make sure that students are academically on track and advise on like what degree paths they should take. But they're also there to be checking in with um, students kind of in a way that a manager would with a direct report. Mm. at a company looking at the student's uh, trajectory through make school kind of as like a professional development journey um, and ensuring that, that, that the student is prioritizing areas of growth that are important to them, identifying where their strengths and weaknesses are, um, and, and setting clear goals to, to, to address those areas of weakness and grow over the course of the program. We have a full complement of general education courses. Um, I was just catching up yesterday with, uh, with our faculty who teach, teaches our ethics course and talking about ways that we um, can make it even more relevant to some of the considerations that are occurring right now in tech, um, which, you know, five years ago, the branding of the Silicon Valley in tech was like, you know, we're the anti-Wall Street goody two-shoes, you know, nerds out here uh, right. can that do no harm. Um, and now everyone's looking at us and going, hey, y'all have, you know, totally disrupted labor markets and, and might have ruined the election. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, the ethics of all this become all, all, all the more important. And then we have a core curriculum that um, that is basically, uh, they're in major courses, so they're technically part of the computer science major. They're not general education, but they're all the non-technical skills you need to succeed in tech. So that is um, a core curriculum that that, that is uh, through in the form of a mandatory class that every student takes every single term they're at make school. And it goes through an entire arc of topics from uh, communication and professional skills, project management, task management, collaboration, to things that are more specific to product development, like UI UX design, to things that, uh, you know, user research um, and, 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 you know, uh, design thinking, all the way to entrepreneurial skills, ensuring the students understand um, uh, how they can define what kind of problem the product they're building can solve, what the market for it could be, how to pitch it, um, how to grow the audience. And what ends up happening is through that class, we can instill one of our core values, which is CS for good and, uh, you know, building software for impact. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that is less obvious, I think, from the outside as to how we are able to ensure that our students have an engaged citizen, well-rounded you know, human kind of mindset is by giving them the the cultural context and and prioritizing as a core value that the software that they're going to build in their in major classes in classes that don't seem like civics oriented, you know, mobile development, web development, this and that, data science, machine learning, that they're going to be encouraged and rewarded for building projects and products that are world positive, global positive, and to really think about how they can have an impact and make the world a better place as they're studying. And by creating that culture, and because there's no, you know, grading on a curve, none of that, we do all grading on rubrics, there's a huge amount of collaboration, there's zero, zero incentive to outcompete your classmates, everyone is in it together. And what we've seen as a result is that you know, the theory of general education is fantastic and a bunch of the components behind that um, we do adopt and we do have, but the practice of building a software product to solve a real problem, seeing its impact in the real world, getting real feedback, potentially seeking out an organization as a client. We have students mm -hmm. working in the city of San Francisco with local nonprofits. That puts that you know, sort of engaged citizen, well-rounded mindset into action in a way that actually we think um, 
students can't really get elsewhere because, or, you know, they're getting it like by, 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 you know, through clubs or through weekend hackathons. Um, uh, but, but the, the culture of those, of those events is not always as encapsulated as we are. We're really, really focused on this as, as, as a primary value. And so when you walk into make school and you meet our students, I think it's really hard to guess. Like if you didn't know that you were on a campus with only CS majors, mm. because, we end up attracting students whose primary passions oftentimes are not purely CS. It's like they want to solve the climate crisis. So they're, they're like concentrating in data science and machine learning and all their projects have to do with that. They care about social justice and all the software they build has to do with that. They care about tackling homelessness and all the software they build has to do with that. And so we see a huge amount of civic engagement and impact mindset as students study, as opposed to it being this kind of thing that you're like studying in, in this, in this bubble to get ready to do it afterwards. Right. Um, and it makes for a lot more of a natural integration of general education and, uh, and sort of these, these, these broader civic concepts into the education. Yeah. With the, all the ideas of the things that students want to do, talking about the impact, you know, those projects that they want to focus on. Do you believe that education is inherently an independent quest or that an institution will kind of always be there to guide the students along on those? There's no one right answer. Um, and I'm, I'm generally, you know, not, not, not a fan of like, you know, there's like, you know, you can give the soundbite answer that sounds visionary, but the reality is there need to be more different kinds of options for different kinds of students. Mm -hmm. And you can see from a lot of the data behind MOOCs, you know, there was a huge wave of like, oh my God, the world is about to change because, you know, MIT put their entire education online. Stanford put their entire education online. Harvard put their entire education online. This was groundbreaking at a time, you know, now we kind of take it for granted. And people, people thought, that was going to change the world a lot more than it did. And I think the reason for that is when you look at the stats, there's, you know, depending on which source you look at somewhere between like four to 10% of people who are particularly good at teaching themselves in a self-directed independent quest kind of a way. And of course it's, it's, it's a spectrum, right? Like it's not like you, you, you can do it or you can't do it, but there's literally people who can do it purely in isolation. Um, I had a former student who taught himself entirely, um, you know, from from a from a small village in rural Egypt, and and he was by the time he made it to make school, like he was he was really advanced, and he learned entirely for himself from all these online materials. Wow. Now, part of the secret of make school, though, is that I never could teach myself effectively <laughs> entirely independently. And I come across as being this like relatively quick, you know, clever, fast talking kind of guy. People assume that I'm on a different end of the spectrum than I actually am. My dad is one of the best self learners I've ever met. He opens a book, he reads the book, he's got it. When I was little, he, he bought me these books, you know, like <laughs> for visual basic and stuff. And I remember opening these and just like, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And so I knew that I appeared to be super high performing because I had the luxury of going to a very supportive high school with these awesome CS teachers. And I long had the suspicion that there was a tremendous amount of survivorship bias in education where at the other end, you basically got these people who like were in the five to 10% who were good at taking education as independent quest. We, we weeded out a lot of the other people who like me could be high performing if they had a lot of support. And then we called the people who made it the other end, you know, the elites, you know, when actually We've left behind the vast majority of people who could be high performing if only they had good support structures, right? So 
sure, elements of it are going to be an independent quest. It's all on a spectrum. Sure, mm -hmm. it's the best time in history to be an independent learner. All the information is out there. But especially when it's about integrating not just knowledge, but know-how, practice, collaboration. Mm -hmm. If you think about like building a product, right, a, a mobile app, it's not one thing you're learning. It's not one topic. It's an integration of a thousand different things. And those kinds of things, I find educational institutions or structured forms of learning tend to be the best. Um, and I don't want to make the statement that there doesn't exist somebody out there who can, who can like do it just as well, self-directed, but the stats show us that those folks are relatively rare. Um, and, and, and that we over-index on them. We, we, we assume that their existence is, 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 is more common because we've weeded out everyone else earlier on. And so when we look at the state of higher education, we think that's what's normal when, but we've, you know, the great success of make school in some way, if you think about it, is an arbitrage opportunity where we take these students who have not been traditionally academically successful because our admissions process is very non-traditional or test optional, et cetera, et cetera. We get these students who don't usually have top school options. We recognize in them sort of what, 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 what I felt I had, which was high potential, low ability for self-directed learning. And we provide them an environment that then at the other end, it gives them outcomes that are comparable to students coming out of a Stanford or MIT. Right. And so uh, what, what the fundamental issue I think that exists today is that the barriers to entry for new institutions are so high that there hasn't been new entrants to create new models to propose new ways of doing things. And ideally, like make school should not be since 2014, the only institution to go through this new policy that the accreditors were like, hey, come one, come all, alternative institutions like create new colleges and we're the only ones. I hope that changes by the way. And so someone might come out there with a different model of computer science education, do the same process that we did with another university, offer a bachelor's program, have a completely different model, and that would be great. We might be the best for some students. They'd be the best for other students, right? There isn't one true path, um, but there's a lack of alternative options right now. And a lot, most colleges look fairly similar in their, in their, in, in their approaches. They're using mm -hmm. the same pool of textbooks, same pool of teaching methods. So we've got the vast majority of options out there are kind of just one fixed old school path. And then it's like that or independent. And there needs to be a lot of different kinds of colleges for a lot of different kinds of students, but structured learning environments on average the research shows, you know, can be very different from one another, but they, what they have in common is that when they are a match for a student's learning style, they generally outperform independent learning. Mm. So you mentioned, you know, why isn't there more of these colleges or alternative learning places out there? And you were a college dropout from MIT, yet you went on to start a college. So how did you wrestle with this mindset that, yes, I'm the person that can tackle this problem? Well, you know, there was, there, there was no one moment where I was like, I, Jeremy Rossman, shall drop out of MIT and in the future <laughs> we'll have a vision for a new college. You know, it was a very iterative, uh, iterative and gradual process. And it was driven entirely by a core cultural value we have, which is, you know, take student feedback. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you know, two summers in a row, the student feedback I got was like, wow, this was better than what I did in the last two years in college. And it's like, oh, okay. If students are saying that, then I probably should allow myself to act on that. But I'm under no illusions. Like the path I've taken is very privileged. It's not one that um, you know, would work in the general case, I don't think. Um, and, um, you know, to some degree, I also thought like, you know, if, if this opportunity presents itself and I, and I don't do it, like, like who, who's, who's going to do it, you know? Um, and so I think my co-founder and I, at some point, hearing that we were having such an impact, felt like it was worth 
trying to expand that impact. And when we think about growing Make School, we think primarily about like, think of all the people who could be having their lives improved through this um, that we're not serving it. And like, how, do, how can we reach those people and how can we serve them? Yeah. And yeah, um, you guys, I mean, from the very beginning, you were inherently tying your success to the success of your students, you know, really diving into that. You guys don't get paid unless they get paid. So why yeah. is this so important? And what do you think education would look like if more schools adopted this mentality? I think, you know, we talked already about the barriers to entry issue. Like there needs mm-hmm. to be something unblocked in, in allowing, you know, the fact that there's been so many boot camps and alternative education institutions that are not even on, on, on any sort of path to becoming colleges, that is a problem that needs to be fixed. We need, we need to have more new institutions injecting new blood into higher ed. And the other, so that's one sort of big fix. And the other big fix is there needs to be incentive alignment. There's a lot of ways to achieve this, by the way. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that every single college could do it today. And the, the colleges that don't do it have chosen not to do it actively. And the reason for this is that there is now it's existed for a long time. There's this thing called an LRAP which um, is an insurance product that you can buy that will pay your students' loans for you, for them, if they don't have an outcome above a certain salary. Okay. So, and, and, and I've met the companies that market this insurance product, and they tell me that colleges are simply not interested because mm-hmm. the cultural values have strayed so far from thinking of themselves as being student-serving versus the preservers of an old institutional way of being that even though there is an option here today now that every single college could adopt, like Stanford, of course, has the budget to buy insurance <laughs> for all of the, right? Like there's no question about it, but they don't do it. Right. So, so incentive alignment, whether it's legislated, whether it's by cultural shift, whether it's by adoption of income share agreements, like we do, we don't get paid unless students get paid, whether it's you buy insurance for your students, there needs to be, a widespread shift towards a focus, not on inputs, but on outputs. We glorify schools by how many students they reject and not by how many students they help succeed. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, what doing this does for us is it means that every single person on the team wakes up every morning with their priorities straight. And when you, you know, when you go, especially there's some schools, you know, imagine like, uh, for, you know, folks listening who've gone to these schools know what I'm talking about. Like you go like an NYU or USC, right? Like, these are schools operating like mega corporations, right? They're like, they're, I mean, there's people on staff. Their number one priority is like acquiring new land and putting up new buildings and like fundraising for prestige and like fancy new this and that and that. And it's like, hey, y'all, your job at the fundamental level is to educate the students <laughs> right. who are in your institution. And without the incentive structure to feel pain every time mm-hmm. they're not doing the job, their priorities can stray to such a degree that it doesn't even occur to the people on staff at NYU who are out there trying to renegotiate the permitting process for their new development in some new neighborhood that like their priorities are all wrong and they got students today now, some of whom are succeeding, some of whom aren't, and, and that that should be painful every single moment it happens every single second of the day. At make school, our priorities are straight. Wake up every morning, we're like, okay, which students are happy? Which students are not? Which students are succeeding? Which students are not? How can we help them? How can we help them? How can we help them, right? Where's our curriculum good? Where does it need to be better? And I'll tell you, we are not perfect. Like, we collect feedback from our students every seven weeks, and and, and we get roasted, right? <laughs> we get, like, our students are like, y'all are screwing up with this class. That <laughs> curriculum was no good. Like, we, we are not perfect. But you better believe that there's nobody at Make School whose job is 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 in any way disassociated 
from the fundamental reality that we don't get paid unless the students get paid. And it creates a tremendously positive culture for the students because that's all we care about is student success. And so the laws have to change or the financial systems have to change to push this at more schools. And I don't think that it's just like, a, oh, make schools a special case because, you know, we, we work in computer science education. And so the salaries are high so we can get away with it. Other schools, you know, you know, can't because, you know, they're, they're, they're educating students for jobs that aren't as well paying. It's like, y'all need to run the numbers. It's broadly not true. Between these LRAPs that, that schools could buy, between, you know, the average salaries and a bunch of different disciplines, you know, people who go to college on average do get a salary bump. There's actually a huge amount of options available for colleges to shift towards outcomes focus and incentive alignment in any area of study, in any major. The only majors for which it wouldn't work are majors that are effectively luxury goods. We're like, mm. You know, probably if you're like from a wealthy family and you want to go and like get, you know, this education and purchase it, you should be able to, but maybe it's not a good call for somebody who's like from a lower income background who needs to see ROI on their education. Maybe for those kinds of majors, you know, you're going to have to supplement with government funding if you think it's important for society, or you're going to have to let them be luxury goods. But there's so many areas of study that are not computer science where this would work in some form or other. And it's not a numbers problem or that makes schools an exception. It's a fundamental legislative and cultural issue in our country that we have not prioritized keeping universities accountable for making students successful. And we could, and it would change practically everything, I think. Yeah. Uh, what are you guys doing for students' long-term success? So like, obviously the industry rapidly changes. Um, and what are you guys doing for like a, a lifelong type of um, learning journey where they may have to come and reskill, um, update yeah. themselves? So the honest answer is that right now we don't have anything and we know we need to. Um, we are probably going to introduce um, in the next few years, a master's program that can be an accelerated master's. Students can come back, whether it's evenings, weekends, full-time, we're not fully sure, but something that allows them to reskill and get a master's degree. Um, and so I think that's probably the next evolution for us in terms of, of, of lifelong learning. Um, We've found that our education has been broad and foundational enough that our students are not reporting um, fundamental difficulty staying up to date on the job, uh, no more or no less than students who, you know, went, went to other top schools. Uh, so we haven't skimped on the theory or on the fundamentals so that like all of a sudden when a framework changes, our students are going, oh, how do I stay up to date? You know, we get students right. who learn mobile development with us making iOS apps and then they get jobs at Android as Android developers and it's fine, right? They can just learn the new stack. It's not a big deal. So our students are on, on, a, on a several year time scale um, are turning out to be fairly future proof and pretty adaptable in the market. Um, so it hasn't been a primary pain point, but we know that over time there's going to be significant value we can provide if we allow students to come back and reskill and upskill, um, especially as the next wave of, you know, whatever it is right now, it's data science and machine learning. We'll, we'll see what the next wave is. It could be a, a further evolution of, of, of broadly, you know, AI, um, you know, to be determined, but, um, you know, who knows, maybe crypto will take off again. <laughs> um, um, so we're not there yet. Um, we got to focus on, you know, doing, doing our fundamentals well and, 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 and scaling that to a reasonable degree, but it's, it's in our future for sure. Okay. Um, so I'd hope uh, that you could explain to me this idea of a public benefit corporation and, mm -hmm. you know, how that works with the Dominican University, your guys' partnership, and then why you guys decided to take a for-profit model rather than the traditional education institution. Right. So these are all really good questions. So a public benefit corporation um, is a type of for-profit um, that 
basically has a different like corporate constitution. It's, it's called the charter that, that all companies have. And it allows the company to prioritize a bottom line that is a public benefit at equal or, or even uh, higher priority than a financial bottom line, essentially protecting the company from pressure from investors or shareholders to only focus on profit. So make school is allowed because we are a public benefit corporation to focus on public good. And even if it comes at the expense of profit and all of our shareholders have bought into this and now it's in the charter. And so, you know, the executive team has a mandate to serve our public benefit, um, which is creating avenues of upward mobility for students of all backgrounds. Um, and, you know, maintaining this incentive alignment um, to create education that, uh, that, that lifts students into top outcomes. And, you know, maybe it'd be easier to like make a lot of money by turning into a degree mill and only serving, you know, rich students, whatever it is. Like there's a lot of stuff you could do as a for-profit college that might be um, in a short term, allow you to pop your revenue and, and, you know, and make a lot of money faster. And like, we don't do those things. And our, our charter basically um, doesn't, doesn't allow us to ignore public benefit and doesn't allow our shareholders to pressure us to focus on profit. So um, it's this new thing. Um, uh, and, and we're proud to, we're proud to be one. Um, the, the, uh, the incentive alignment, you know, I, I don't actually have like uh, super duper strong feelings that like, you know, every new college should be a for-profit or should be a nonprofit. Um, I think that it's been really, really helpful for us to tap into a pool of capital that is willing to support this. And I don't see, I mean, the evidence is out there, right? It's not like there's a bunch of nonprofit make school like institutions out right. there solving this problem, right? right? So if starting a nonprofit was a viable path to solving higher education in the United States, I think we'd be seeing more of it. And what we're seeing is that most alternative education needs some capital funding to get started. And the philanthropic world right now is not in a place where it's, it's supporting these kinds of new ventures at the scale needed. We were able to tap into $30 million of venture capital to get this whole engine revving where we don't get paid until students get jobs. It takes a lot of money up front. Right. Gotta wait for the students to get paid, right? <laughs> um, and so the, the decision was mostly a practical one, not an ideological one. It wasn't like, you know, oh, really needs to be this or needs to be that um, from an ideology perspective. It's that um, this is this is the way that we saw a path to getting it done. And um, the reason that we are comfortable being a for-profit um, philosophically is that by, 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 by being a public benefit corporation and by maintaining incentive alignment, basically every single path that we've seen for for-profit colleges to do terrible things, <laughs> not really available to us. Like, you know, it's... It's, uh, I mean, first of all, it would like destroy our, people would like not want to come here anymore if we were like, surprise, pay up front now, <laughs> you know, right. um, um, if we ever did that, you know, without some sort of insurance thing or whatever, people would be, would be, would be uh, trying to burn the place down. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, there's just like a lot, of, a lot of the anti-patterns in for-profit higher ed come from the fact that there is a, um, you know, a sort of federally subsidized, like, you know, fire hose of money that you can drink from um, called federal student aid that has been sort of given to for-profit colleges without much, uh, much accountability. And like, we don't even tap into that right now. And so it's, it's, uh, I think it'd be, it'd be fantastic for there to be new models of college emerging that are under a nonprofit model. Like, I think that'd be great too. Um, we have something that allows, um, you know, impact oriented investors to put their money where their mouth is and support an organization that is doing a lot of good. And that, 
would be harder for us if we were if we were nonprofit. And so, in terms of serving more students faster, scaling, growing, it's been it's been serving us well. And I hope that we can create a new model for what a ethical for-profit college can be like. Um, the last thing I'll say on that point is that for-profit colleges being universally shitty scams is a pretty American phenomenon um, because of the incentive structures and the loose regulatory environment that we have here. There mm-hmm. are other countries where a substantial number of the new and respectable colleges that operate and serve students that aren't able to get into the highly selective, like top universities in that country, that those colleges are for-profits and that they're regulated in such a way that they um, that it's, you know, it's not, it's not a huge disaster. And right. even in the U S we have an, an, an example that works pretty well. I mean, it's controversial and there's great actors and bad actors, but like our whole charter school system is basically a for-profit side of, um, elementary and secondary education mm-hmm. that, you know, while there have been some terrible horror stories, like broadly speaking is not the dumpster fire that for-profit higher ed has been. Um, and so I think that, you know, we are going to forge forward being a public benefit corporation, a good actor, incentive alignment, protect the students. And over time, I think that we can, we can forge a path for a regulatory and legislative environment that basically creates a situation where to, if you want to be a for-profit college, you have to be doing good like we are doing. Um, and I'll tell you that being a nonprofit does not prevent colleges from being pretty terrible as, as, as a lot of students know, right? So, um, so I think those, those it's, I mean, it's, it's totally true. Like the vast majority of fraud claims against colleges are made against for-profits because the vast majority of fraudulent colleges are for-profit colleges. We're aware of that. Um, but, um, nothing structural about being a for-profit prevents us, I think, from doing good given the way that we've structured it with public benefit and our, and our finances. Yeah. With this in mind and all the stuff that you know now, um, if you were to be a new entrant in this market, establish a new university, where would you advise starting? That is a really, really great question. I think that the, um, the pathways are easiest if you either like have a track record and ability to attract a large pool of capital to hit the ground running. So you mm-hmm. can start like faculty and programs and so on and so forth. And I know a couple people, they're not necessarily public yet, but I know of organizations that are doing that. So I think in the next year or two, there's people that we are actually advising, um, uh, informally, like we're just trying to help them out. You know, they come to us once a month for advice that are starting new colleges. Um, and, and they've been able to raise some money cause they have traffic records, um, in, in education or other, other industries. And so they're able to start like as a college day one. Um, but otherwise, you know, the path that we followed broadly speaking, which is start with what is the minimum viable like unit of valuable education you can provide for us it was a summer program and then expand from there until you have enough content and curriculum that you are an accreditable program um i think that that pathway identifying like who do you want to serve what what problem can you solve for them start building up that content and curriculum stop start building up a track record and at some point you're going to be a good fit for this new incubation policy. Um, if you Google it, you know, uh, the accreditor, uh, the acronym is WSCUC. If you, if you Google WSCUC incubation policy, you'll find um, that policy outlined. And, you know, you can always email me and I'm an expert on that now and I'll help you, you know, navigate it happily. I'm doing that for a couple of colleges right now already. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's either like have a track record, raise some money, hit the ground running with, with, the, with the infra, you know, ready or do the MVP minimum class expand from there until you're ready to start um, calling yourself a college. Okay. So uh, in an industry that's dominated by, you know, the old guard of educational institutions, how do you see change happening in the next 20 years? So there's going to be a lot of forcing functions for change. One is that we're undergoing a demographic shift 
where the, 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 just the numerical pool of students graduating high school is, is shrinking as our birth rates have declined. And so mm-hmm. um, definitionally, so colleges are going to go out of business. Like, right? There's going to be a bunch of colleges that just like mathematically, it's, it's a zero-sum game. Like, there's just not <laughs> to fill all the colleges. So, so that's going to create a lot of pressure because all of a sudden, for the first time in maybe a long time, a lot of colleges are going to start trying to innovate in some way to be the survivors in a world where mathematically a bunch of them have to die. Mm-hmm. So that I think is going to push for a lot of good things. I think, I think um, we are going to forge a path by becoming the first independent spinoff out of the incubation policy that's going to inspire others to start new colleges. I think we're going to see new entrants in the market. And I really hope and you know this is this is this is becoming more and more of a long shot hope given given sort of just the general polarization in our political environment. But I really hope that somebody really smart um, is because you know is in charge of overhauling our higher education laws and regulations, and is able over the next twenty years to push things towards outcomes, accountability, um, and we're starting to see some of that. If you Google the higher education reauthorization, um, it's a you know it's a set of laws that are being passed to update. Um, this, uh, this, this broad piece of legislation called the higher education act, um, that is expiring. And in the updates, there's a lot about trying to move in this direction. And so I think if the political will and momentum continues, you know, there's, there's, there's the fixes in the, in the near term that are like, okay, you know, maybe we'll have a free college program. I think that something like that implemented well could be great by the way, but we need, we need a structural change that, um, that incentivizes colleges to be good actors um, mm-hmm. across the board. And so I think with a mix of the fight for survival, the new entrants coming in, disrupting the market, and legislative change, pushing things towards outcomes, I think there's hope. I think higher education in the U.S. is going to become unscrewed up faster than healthcare in the U.S. <laughs> um, and I see the, the winds kind of pushing in that direction. I, th- I, see, I see a lot of hope. So I think 20 years from now, um, college education will, will, will look different. And it's not that there's going to be like the new model that disrupts. It's going to be that there is the market allows for a bunch of different models that all can be different ways to different ways. And that we're going to see more variety and, uh, and more quality and, and better outcomes. Mm. So a more philosophical question for you, but college has kind of been this crux of like an outdated template of go to school, get good grades, you know, go to college, get a degree, get a job and then ride that out for 40 years till you retire. What do you think the path for individuals looks like now with colleges evolving this way? Well, you're already seeing outside of colleges a huge amount of growth in upskilling, reskilling, corporate training. Um, so, you know, the change is already happening in the sense that people are getting just-in-time education and updates for their education and skills um, outside of a traditional college setting uh, throughout their careers. So that it's going to exist more and more, but, you know, it's happening. I think there's going to be – people are going to start realizing there's ways for this to fold back into college. Wake up and go, oh, shoot. You know, we've been missing out on our core mission. Why, you know, why is General Assembly dominating the market for corporate upskilling? Like, you know, this could be something that we do. And so it, the stable state, you know, you know, 20, 30 years from now might be um, if, if institutions are nimble enough that, that some of that continuing education that we already see is, is happening, is growing, that pathway that you're describing is already being disrupted, it might start being 
you know, that disruption, uh, um, uh, you know, higher education institutions might start participating in that disruption. Um, but I think there's no question that, um, again, there's just going to be a lot of different right answers. There's going to be mm-hmm. a lot of, um, you know, do it at home, do it in the evenings, do it on the weekends, do it together, do it virtually, do it in VR, right? Like, um, there's going to there's be a bunch, you know, your, your company pays for it, you couldn't pay for it, you do it in between jobs. Like, the, the number of new models is already exploding. And so I think that if you're graduating college today, the odds that you go 40 years without any sort of additional education, whether you pay for it, your employer pays for it, you pay for it only if it's successful, whatever it might be, like the odds that you're, you're, you're done with education, I think are very low. Um, but predicting exactly what your next encounter with education is going to be um, is, uh, you know, I'm not quite an old I can't I can't tell you, but I can tell you that the, the environment is changing in such a way as to support there being more and more and more options for what that could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you will have new encounters with education after you graduate college. Um, and, and the possibilities are going to, are only going to multiply. Awesome. Well, before I get to my last question, uh, where can people find more about make and, uh, what's a brief overview of the admissions look like? So, you know, you can go to makeschool.com and you'll find information about the college, the degree program, academic calendar, course catalog, our faculty, students, projects, um, you know, everything you'd like to know. And, um, if you want to apply, uh, we, we have an early application deadline actually, um, uh, in, uh, on November 10th and then a regular deadline, um, in early January. And then we do rolling admissions after that. The process, broadly speaking, is you submit a written college application looks somewhat like a traditional college application. We don't charge an application fee. We ask more questions about what have you built? What do you want to build? What have you created? Trying to get a sense for you, you know, as a maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also create a lot more space in our application for students to share non-traditional evidence of being a hard worker. So if your grades are good, awesome. But if they're not, like, tell us about, are, you know, are you uh, supporting your family with part-time jobs? Do you volunteer? Do you mentor? Have you started a club? Do you run a community? Do you take care of your siblings? Like, these are things that we ask explicitly in the application because we find that a lot of our lower income applicants have really strong proof points for their good work ethic that don't look like good grades. Right. I want to hear about those. After the written application, we contact you to schedule a phone interview. Um, we get on the phone. We talk about your career goals. Make sure that you actually want to go to a college that um, uh, that only has one major, which is computer science. Obviously, different tracks within computer science, but still only only one major. And we. Uh, by the way, accept students who've never coded before. If you've never coded before, but you really know you want to do this, we'll give you um, access to resources as part of the application process to, to kind of validate that you enjoy it. So after the phone interview, if you're on the more beginner end or you've never coded before, we'll give you a little like programming class slash challenge um, that'll take you a few hours, validate that you, you know, can enjoy this stuff, that you can... Uh, uh, you know, uh, manage your time effectively to complete it in the timeline we give you, um, and uh, and and really uh, that, that you want to do this sort of thing. And then we have pathways for students who come in having you know I've been coding since I was nine. Three apps in the app store, so like welcome to make school. We got a track for you. And then for students who are like I went to a high school where there was no CS. I've dabbled a little bit online, but I've never had a chance to do it formally. It's like great, we have a track for you. So broadly speaking, written application, phone interview, and then optional depending on your level of experience small programming class slash challenge. Awesome. Well, my last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? I think if I had to say to give one call for, you know, your, your, your listeners, I think that the way that we can push the world to evolve is to encourage people to 
do the reading and understand the systems and structures that they care so deeply about. What I mean by that is that we have entered a cultural era where you can get a lot of positive feedback for very superficial analysis and superficial opinions on issues that are of deep, deep significance and importance. Even if you're right, by the way, you're, you still might be right and superficial. And uh, what I see a lot in, in my generation, and, 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 and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 28, so I'm not that much older than my students, <laughs> Is 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 this this you know we've we've like given into the appeal of the positive feedback we get when we post that social media zinger when we have a superficial opinion on a deep issue, and the realities behind the core problems of our society are simply not simple enough to be captured by any label and will not be solved by any simple opinion. You think that our healthcare should be more like Europe? Then you should understand that we spend more on it than Europeans do. So what does that mean? You know, is our healthcare system really a failure of capitalism or is it more or less regulated than a system that works abroad? Do you think our electoral system has issues that have to do with, you know, the presence of, 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 of capital donors who are able to influence the process? Yes, you know, at the fundamental level, the problems you're noticing are correct, but the solutions that people are snapping to, it should be like this, it should be free, it should be capitalist, it should be socialist, it should be free, it should be not, are all so superficial that it's like, you know, it's like listening to people arguing about what programming language they should use to build a software product when what you really should be talking about is like what features is it going to have? How is the system going to work? And like you can build a functioning website with a Python backend or a Ruby backend, you know, that's not what makes it a good product or a bad, bad product. And we've gotten so in love with, with, with being able to tie our personal identity to some form of label, you know, I'm, I'm pro capitalism. Oh, I hate late stage capitalism. I'm pro, you know, free speech, you know, oh my gosh, this and that, that we are scratching only the surface of these systematic problems in our society. And to understand these solutions, we have to think like engineers. We have to do the freaking reading. We have to go in, you know, it's like we have, you know, the, the, you know, it's like people who are deeply religious and never read the religious text of their religion, right? <laughs> you care deeply about our society, you're in the most open information state that you've mm -hmm. ever been. You can go online, you can read the freaking law, you can understand how the system works. And so if you care about something, you got to do the reading, you got to understand the solutions. And if you don't have time to, that's okay. Because you're, it's only for some reason in this generation that we feel obligated to have an opinion about everything. It's okay not to have deep opinions. It's okay to say, you know what? My, the impact I'm going to have on society is I'm going to have impact on the things that I have the time to deeply understand and deeply care about. Mm. And so when you ask me for my opinion on complex issues, like most issues, I'm like, you know what? I don't know enough to have an opinion. All I can tell you is that all these people also don't know enough to have an opinion. <laughs> so we push society to evolve by encouraging, I think, a, a, a rebirth of deep thought deep analysis, doing the reading, and really shunning the superficial and snapping ourselves to labels that, that, that essentially turn almost every kind of societal um, issue into a team sport. It's like, okay, are you team this or team that for solving this problem? When in fact, we're all just team humanity and right. we should just be in a joint search for the fundamental truth and understanding of what's broken and how to fix it. And, um, and, uh, and so I think that's, that's how we push society to evolve. And I hope that by training engineers and teaching them this kind of thinking through the lens of building products and building, you know, things that actually solve problems for people, it can open their eyes a little bit to how the systems that underlie, 
what's broken in our society are much, much more complex than what can be solved by, you know, a super hot take and 140 characters on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that, that's my answer. Yeah, well, I'm completely behind that mission. And Jeremy, I appreciate you for coming on the show today and sharing everything that you had. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for the awesome questions. Absolutely. Hey, you. Yes, you. I want to thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, then please open up your podcast app, rate and review. That's really going to help get this life-changing content out to more entrepreneurs just like you who are pushing the world forward. As always, my friend, keep evolving.